This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On our podcast, we welcome leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists who shape our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters. Many of them are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country for us, visiting campuses, and presenting free lectures that we invite you to attend. For the visiting scholar schedule, please visit pbk.org. Today, it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Peter Meinick, who holds the Endowed Chair of Professor of Classics in the Modern World at New York University and is Honorary Professor of Humanities at the University of Nottingham in the UK. He specializes in ancient performance, cognitive theory, Greek literature and culture, and humanities public programming. In addition to his academic career, Dr. Meinick has worked extensively in professional theater, founding Aquila Theater, and has directed and produced over 50 productions of classical plays. And if that's not enough, he also serves as a fire chief at the Bedford Fire Department in New York. Welcome, Professor. Hi, how are you? Good to be here. Oh, good to have you with us. And of course, I'm going to ask you about the fire department, but I don't want to start with that. That must be the the novelty question you get asked. But I want to uh, take you back to... uh, little bit of your childhood primary primary secondary education and and really let let's start with you know, was there a moment when you thought to yourself if i can swing it i want to make my life and my career in classics and with respect to classical drama uh, that's a great question i mean i was always interested in ancient history growing up i grew up in england and you're actually surrounded by roman history my mother was a mm-hmm. teacher uh, an elementary school teacher. So she was would always indulge me if I wanted to go see a Roman villa or look at a fresco. Or I mean, I was kind of a geek like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I was the first in my family to go to university. My dad was a builder. And I had an uncle who was an archaeologist. And so originally I was fascinated with archaeology. So from the age of about eight, I would go and work on digs and just get involved on, on the archaeological side. And then really I sort of set that aside and had uh, different ambitions. And I, I embarked on a military career. I joined the Royal Marines when I was 16 and I signed on for 22 years. And I thought, well, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a Royal Marine commando. They found my mind and sent me to university. And I decided there, well, why don't I study the ancient world? Because that, what, that's what I'm interested in. And that kind of rekindled everything all over again. And uh, that's where classics came in because I didn't have the benefit of Greek and Latin in my secondary school. So I did this sort of intensive program at University College London to sort of mm-hmm. bathe me in Greek and Latin, which was very traumatic. But by the end of it, I had a real love for Greek in particular. A boot camp in ancient Greek and, and Latin. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Greek drama. Do you think in all the work you've done in drama in the classroom and in production, is Greek drama meant to be read or is it meant to be heard and seen? It's absolutely uh, not meant to be read. Um, in fact, the 
the Greeks had no word for reading. And if you did read, you read aloud to somebody else. They would thought you were crazy if you just sat there and read in silence. The term for reading is, is to recall or to recite. So certainly Greek drama of the fifth century is, is a performative element. But of course, we have the texts, right? That's what we have. Um, and we have, you know, we have other material evidence too. A lot of my work has been about, well, how do you find a new way to come to the text that mm -hmm, takes mm -hmm. all the tools of philology, but also brings in the performative aspects? You know, Aristotle and Plato says that even though Plato kind of rails against theatre, well, what he calls bad theatre, they both right. believe it has a function in kind of training the minds of a democratic audience. And my argument is that it's actually training you towards empathy. It's training you to think about other people's situations and other people's positions, which makes you a better voter, makes you a, a, a better Democrat. I think that all of this fits together quite nicely into, into why the Athenians in particular, with their radical democracy, really invested in theatre, spent more on theatre than they did on defence, which is amazing <laughs> when you think about it. So I think this was a very kind of powerful force, you know, and it, it can still, it can still mm -hmm. have that power today, I think. So thinking about the relevance of all this uh, before we get to, to today, as it changes over time, I mean, how do you see you know, some of the themes uh, as they change over time? I think of Antigone in as a as a dramatic exposition of what we would call civil disobedience in antiquity, and then when Jean Henri needs mm -hmm. a an, an emblem of civil disobedience during the time of the Second World War and the occupation of France by the Third Reich. He writes Antigone. And of course, uh, Antigone makes a big comeback in the 60s in this country. Mm. How does it evolve over time? Mm. Is, is, is it all of us going back to the same well and drawing from that well? It, it's the open-endedness and ambiguity of uh, Greek drama that makes it so powerful, is it, it puts the questions to you. And this is, again, it's kind of democratic side. It says, I'm not going to do the work for you. Here's the tragic problem. W what would you do? I work a lot on the material with, with veterans and refugees. And it's incredible how people who've been in traumatic situations or have to face those kind of decisions really relate to ancient drama. They, they understand they're not being spoon fed. It's asking them to kind of solve these impossible questions. And I think that's what, why it survives. I think that's why it's so refreshing. I mean, I think Antigone is always around. Um, I think the play now we're all talking about, with, is, is Oedipus Tyrannus or Oedipus the King because it's about a leader trying to solve a plague and, and that's what's amazing about Greek drama is just when you think you know them suddenly something happens and you see them in a completely new light and I think that's what makes them a classic work because they they continue to have this relevance and it's cross-cultural as well it's I've, I've worked on Greek drama all over the world with all kinds of people and you know there's 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 something very elemental about them and powerful that that still works to a certain extent, it's which aspect of these characters are we relating to? There's the Oedipus of Oedipus Rex, there's the Oedipus of Oedipus of Colonus, who I always have to say I, I found more appealing because the Oedipus of Oedipus Rex to me always seemed like someone who, uh, who got who got trapped. And I know what it feels like sometimes to be trapped by fate, but on some level, it just doesn't seem fair to hold him accountable for what was going to happen to him regardless. Um, he didn't intend to marry his mother. He married the person who turns out to be his mother. He didn't intend to kill his father. He killed the person who turned out to be his father. Uh, and, and that kind of a push and pull in Oedipus at Colonus seems to me uh, a, a clear um, residence of that more sinned against than sinning idea as opposed to a simple story about someone uh, who's um, 
whose whose own sense of self gets him you know, beyond in this trouble. Yeah, and Oedipus the Clonus is a great, great play and an underrated play. It's the longest, actually, of all the surviving Greek plays. I know because I translated it. It's a beautiful play because he be he becomes a hero at the end. And, of course, Greeks had a very sophisticated way of thinking about heroes. It it wasn't necessarily a positive thing. It was just anybody who'd live, lived larger than life got hero status. And we constantly get disappointed in our leaders because we hold them up to this you know, mythical standard that no human being can ever achieve. And I think we see that in Oedipus Tyrannus, right? Is And of course, to the, or Oedipus Rex, as we call it, to the Athenian, a Tyrannus was not necessarily a bad thing. It was a populist leader. It was somebody who who had a certain amount of um, popular support. And that's Oedipus's problem, is that he has to solve the problem of the plague. And if he can't, he can't lead anymore. I've rethought Oedipus. I, I kind of think Oedipus in Oedipus Tyrannus is a bit is kind of a villain, actually. And it's a much more fun play to see him as somebody who actually isn't this sort of enlightened human trying to battle against fate, but actually is somebody who makes a lot of really bad decisions. But I think that's the system. That's the structure that's imposed upon him. And that's the sort of that's the tragedy. And you're right. And I think Oedipus at Colonus is a beautiful play. Because I think Sophocles, the playwright, is is coming to this and reaching a kind of reconcilement. We've talked a little bit, uh, by implication, about the the relevance to one of the two major issues of our time, if you will, the role of the the government and our leaders right now and our plague, uh, COVID-19. The other major issue, of course, being this extraordinary moment of the reckoning with racial injustice in a way that we haven't seen in this country by some measures in half a century and by some measures a century and a half. Well, what would the Greeks have to say about that? And maybe more to the point, what are you thinking when you think about drama that you'll be involved in in the coming days and its relevance to that part of this moment? I think there's there's two issues, right? There's the issue of, of the Greeks themselves and what their attitude towards race and ethnicity was. And then there's the issue of the subject of classics today and how that's perceived and, and whether classics is an inclusive subject. And I think that there's a huge shift debate going on in classics right now. And I think that we as classicists have to ask ourselves some, some deep questions too. I remember doing um, an event uh, for Congress, uh, from the National Endowment of Humanities. And I was sitting in the van with another performance group who were um, Lakota Sioux Native Americans. And uh, one of the guys was a drummer. And he, w- he was also uh, a lieutenant colonel in the Oklahoma National Guard, right? So a really interesting guy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I asked him, you know, he said, what do you do? I said, I'm a classicist. And I said, well, and I asked him, well, what's your classics? And he played it for me on his drum and he, he sang the song, right? And I thought, yeah, that's actually something we need to be more aware of, right? Is that Greek, Greece and Rome uh, will always be with us. They're important. Whether we like it or not, they, they've impacted our culture in, in enormous ways. They're often the place that people go to during the American Revolution, during the French Revolution, to, to find a mirror, a mirror to nature, right? Another Hamlet reference. So they, they need to be studied, but not to the point where other cultures and their classic works are, are, are pushed to a side. And I think it's hard for us as scholars sometimes uh, who specialize so deeply to then kind of open ourselves up to other ideas. So I, I remember about 10 years ago, I had a student say to me, why do you keep saying Egypt and then Africa? And I was like, you know, you're right, because I've had a post-colonial education. You're absolutely right. Right. For the Greeks, of course, the same the concept of race was something that they didn't understand. That they used the term Ethiopian, 
which meant somebody who was kissed by the sun. And that was not a negative thing. The Ethiopians are actually the only people who the gods deign to dine with uh, during the book one of the Iliad. That's where the gods are. They're dining with the Ethiopians. And there's no that, you know, there's no doubt that there is in Greek culture, there is a, a deference and a respect for African culture as a more ancient, more developed, even in many ways, more powerful culture. So that idea of blackness as a negative or blackness as a marker of something is not found at all. Uh, in Greek culture, if anything, it was my people that didn't like redheads, right? You know, Xanthius, right? We were Thracians and and Gauls. We were we, we were the ones that were enslaved and 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 put to work. Concepts of, ins- of enslavement in antiquity were based on really whether you lost, won or lost in battle, um, rather on a, a ideas of identifying people. So there is, I think, there are some things that we can learn from the Greeks to challenge some of the views that people have about slavery even though antiquity was a slave society. So in a time of reckoning and in a time of taking statues down literally and figuratively, what ought we to do with what icons like Aristotle well, the say Greeks about had a, things like slavery? Yeah, yeah, the Greeks had an answer to that. Well, first of all, Aristotle's comments on slavery that which were used in the South to sort of justify slavery, which is that people are born to slavery. Some people are born to slavery. He actually was being progressive, believe it or not. He he was arguing against the practice of enslaving somebody who'd already been free. He said, that's just the worst thing you can do is to conquer a city and then enslave the population. He's saying, actually, there are people who are, are just, you know, should be slave. That's abhorrent to us, right? But to Aristotle, he was trying to sort of make right, a progress. Pro- be progressive in a way, yeah. in a sense <laughs> yeah. that there are those those who were born uh, to slavery. And in a sense, and this is where it gets very problematic, uh, a lot of what he says seems to suggest, and this is actually for the good of the slaves. So it's yeah. that was very much the narrative that the That's South right. would then pick up to try to justify the peculiar institution and say this is actually better for all concerned. But I think on the statues, the Greeks can tell us something, which is they would have found this ridiculous. A statue to them was a living object. They used to chain their statues down at night because they actually thought that the gods Mm -hmm. would run around and and perform mischief. Romans as well used to, um, the statue was kind of reconsecrated every year with a festival. And once that statue had no reason to be worshipped anymore, had no relevance, it came down and was replaced by something else. So they saw statues as a living embodiment of their values. And this idea that this statue has been here for a thousand years, they said, well, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. So they would just take it down. So to them, a statue was an active object and representative of something that they actually believed in. So they, they would wonder why we, we were having this Making debate. Making such a big place. fuss about taking statues down when they exactly. got their, their usefulness. Obviously, we talk about the Greeks as the source of democracy, the word as well as the, the concept. And it is almost a cliche now to say there are basic concepts of, of democracy are under stress, not just in the States, but really in much of the world, certainly in Western, Central Europe, you know, Eastern Europe, the States, and, and elsewhere, Asia as well. What would the Greek wisdom be for for our moment, do you think, in terms of the stresses or even crisis of democracy that we're experiencing? Of course, democracy was not widespread in ancient Greece. I mean, it was an, an Athenian concept. It was found in Argos. It was found in some other city-states. But, you know, there were most Greek city-states were oligarchies or tyrannies or military dictatorships. So Greece is a, a great way to study democracy because it's a laboratory 
to a certain extent. I, I think that there's some answers in Aeschylus, who's our earliest Greek playwright. Aeschylus is, is my favourite. He's probably the reason I got into tragedy because I had to take an Aeschylus class with the great professor, Pat Eastling, and she was just down from Cambridge to UCL. And she took one look at me and said, you, you should study Aeschylus because he was a soldier like you. And I, it never occurred to me that a soldier could be a playwright, of course. On his grave marker, it, it was purportedly said, here lies Aeschylus. He fought the Battle of Marathon. The long-haired Persian could tell you what a great warrior he was. It didn't mention his hundred plays. And, 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 um, and on the side, he happens to have had a little bit of success as a playwright. Yeah. But I think um, Aeschylus was born in Eleusis. He, he came from a noble family. There's no doubt that he grew up backstage at the mystery rites of Eleusis, watching his parents putting on those masks and terrifying everybody. And I think he brings the, the tenets of the Eleusinian mysteries into his work. And I think he believed that the idea of the unity of opposites of balance between male and female forces, between different classes, and actually an idea of equality, a sort of cosmic idea of equality, was the only way that democracy could move forward. And I think we see in his work all the time, the Oresteia, you know, the world's first courtroom drama, this idea of not just justice, but restorative justice, not just the idea of sort of handing down pronouncements, but actually kind of solving problems. Even Athena doesn't get her own way in the Oresteia. I don't know whether Aeschylus was successful. Ultimately, I, I think that Athenian democracy did fall foul of demagoguery, of populists, of oligarchs. But we also forget that it was restored in the fourth century and it did thrive again during the period of Plato and Aristotle until the invasions of Philip and, and Alexander. So, you know, it was a, it lasted for a couple of hundred years and it was a very successful system. And it certainly produced uh, wealth, art, culture. It's an amazing moment, right? It's sort mm -hmm. of this cradle of Athens that produced so much energy. But I think there's a danger as well with that much energy. And there's a danger in, in keeping the revolution going. But I think Aeschylus does, I'm writing a book on Aeschylus right now. And I think that he, he does provide us with an idea that democracy has to always be linked to equality. And I think the moment when sections of the population feel that they're not treated equal, mm -hmm. democracy is at risk. And I think that happened in Athens. I think it's happening today. And I think that Aeschylus would have proposed this is a time for calibration. Right. This is a time to, to sort of empower people. And it's interesting because Athenian democracy did ultimately muzzle women. It did kind of develop more and more into a slave-owning society. It became more and more male. And I think the more it, mm -hmm. it moved into an unbalanced place, the more it, it actually unmoored itself from its original experiment. Would Aeschylus recognize a discussion of equality in a more post-Kantian world of the, the, the right uh, to the way in which people should be treated and to treat people as ends in and of themselves, not as means to an end? Or was it more a notion of a cosmic balance and that there's a way in which it's not even so much right and wrong vocabulary, almost as a descriptive matter to say it's the bells out of time. It, it, you, can't, you can't build it if it's not balanced. It'll, it'll collapse. Almost less of a normative notion and almost a, a descriptive notion. I think the key is the Athenians had a, a strong concept of reverence it was not a dogmatic kind of set of rules that they followed. There was an idea of reverence. And it seems to us that 
women's voices are muted in Athenian democracy, but actually Athenian democracy really only voted on going to war and certain limited ideas. Most of your daily life came out of the oikos, you know, where we get the word economics from, from the household. And that was the reserve of women. And that was money and marriage and food and trade and production. So they had an enormous authority. They had their own festivals. They had their own leaders. So again, I think we're becoming more sophisticated in reading ancient women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we think, well, they didn't have the vote. So therefore they could have had no power. They had power, right? And and uh, they, they wielded it, which is why we get these very powerful women in, in Greek drama. I think that Aeschylus would have understood uh, the need to welcome foreigners. I mean, the first the first word time we see democracy in an ancient text is an Aeschylus play, and it's the suppliant women. Mm -hmm. And he creates this ancient story of the first democratic decision. And the first democratic decision is, should we accept 50 African women who are refusing to get married and bring them into our city? But that will mean war against Egypt. And they vote unanimously, not only to bring these women in to protect foreigners, I mean, they're refugees, right? But to go to war against Egypt to protect them. This is remarkable. That's an interesting debate for us today, too, is that Aeschylus realized that Athens being a great port city, its power was in embracing foreigners and having these trade connections and being open to the world. And, and that, again, I think when a democracy shuts itself off mm -hmm. to immigration, to the world, it's at risk. You know, another piece of what Phi Beta Kappa uh, is, has been long involved in uh, was actually the creation of the National Endowments for the Humanities and the Arts. We were among the organizations back in the early 1960s that were uh, foundational to the creation of the NEA and the, uh, and the NEH. I know you've done uh, work with and for NEH. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about your perception mm -hmm. of the role of public support for the humanities, particularly in the time in which we're living? I think they are a, a jewel in American culture for a number of reasons. First of all, you know, I, I run nonprofits and there's, there, you know, the, while we all love the generosity of donors and we all count on them, there is something fundamentally unfair about it democratically, which is, you know, a small sliver of population get to decide who they give their money to. So what, what's wonderful about the mm -hmm. NEH and the NEA, and they're not perfect, is that, you know, anybody can write that grant. They're hard. I get it. And there's a committee of your peers who can decide, you know, if you're going to get that taxpayer's money for a project. And it's rigorous and it's prestigious, but it's a beautiful thing. I actually have been always very impressed with the peer review system in the NEH in particular. Mm -hmm. And I've worked closely with the NEH, initially with public libraries, and the staff there are so dedicated. And it seems to me that both the NEH and the are fundamentally American ideas. And to me, they should have way more money than they have, of course. Mm -hmm. And they're constantly under threat. We benefited. One of our second grants was a, a chairman special award, which was nearly a million dollars, mm -hmm. which took us to 100 public libraries all over America, doing a project based around the Iliad to, to thousands of people. I mean, it was a very very popular program. And, and I realized that the American public library is one of the few places in American culture where there's no financial transaction. It's free. Right. It's a beautiful thing. And, and also this is where veterans are often new Americans, working people, homeless people, you know, homeless people, people that we want to reach. So for us as a theater company, it was an incredible place to develop our audience and also to put Americans together, talking to each other. 
So listen, I told you I would, uh, I'd give you a chance to tell us what must be everybody's favorite trivia question about you. So, so tell us a little bit about being involved in the Bedford Fire Department. Well, you know, outside of New York, as I was surprised, I live about 30 miles north of the city, all the emergency services, apart from the cops, are volunteer, which was kind of shocking when I first got here. But actually, they're very good. And actually, many of them are also first responders in their professional life, which is kind of odd, right, that you would then volunteer to do it. Right. But it's a real calling. And I, I had had some medical training in the Marines, and I, I'd always helped people. And I realized I just don't know what I'm doing anymore. And then our first child was at an emergency birth and, and I met the kind of emergency services and they said, you know, we need more drivers. And I, so I joined up as an EMT initially and I got the training and then I got sucked into the fireside as a rescue technician and then just as a firefighter. And that that suited the kind of marine side of me that likes breaking things and, mm -hmm. and kicking down doors and you, you can do it for the public good. But also it's important because it's a real cross section of Americans that serve in in fire departments it puts you in contact with people that you might not normally be in contact with as an academic which i think is really important people with different views from you that you you're all dependent on each other so i love that aspect of volunteerism it's always good i say to my students it's always good to be a rookie again right it's always good to go i've got to start again and relearn something mm -hmm. and and it's humbling right and the thing about being a, a firefighter or an emt you have to do what you say you can do right? You can't just say, I can do this. You have to be able to do it or someone's going to die. Right. And I think that's like really humbling. And you can't just write an um, article about it. You actually have to be out there doing no, it. No. Funnily enough, I've, I've learned a lot more about Greek drama through some of the traumatic experiences that, that I've had to face dealing with, with children and things that you'd rather not see. And I've come back to Greek plays and, and, and seen them in there and gone, wow, I, I, I get this now. I see what this play is right. about. Um, after a particularly harrowing incident with two children, I went and reread Ripperty's Heracles, where where Heracles kills his own children, and I was like, "Wow, I I it was therapy for me actually." So this is Five Beta Kappa. We do uh, book lists. People love our book lists that we recommend in the Key Reporter or sometimes the book reviews in the American Scholar magazine. So I'm going to give you a chance, Professor, to give us the syllabus. For all of our listeners now, if someone was looking for a good point of entry into Greek drama, what would you recommend as your as your good accessible points of entry, but what the book reviewers like to call for the serious general reader? I would suggest that um, Hackett Publishing, who are based out of Cambridge, uh, Cambridge in, in Massachusetts, they publish some of my translations. They, they uh, publish a series of translations of Greek plays that have excellent introductions that are really good basic information mm -hmm. and they're not overwhelming and and their price point is great they're about 10 bucks for a paperback they have works by the philosopher paul woodruff for example who's a, himself a vietnam veteran who really understands greek drama right so i would send people directly to those um in order to kind of get excited about greek drama well peter there are many reasons we're looking forward to this pandemic being over but one of them is so that you and your actors can get back out and reach people and affect people and help them change their lives. And I bet when you do that, they're gonna change yours back right in return. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. Cedric Wilson is lead producer, Virginia Laura is managing producer, and Hadley Kelly is the Phi Beta Kappa producer on the show. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. 
To learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our Visiting Scholar Program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time.